You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Just got to be honest, I woke up this morning and just, I don't know, one of those days, um, grumpy, discouraged, frustrated, nothing particular, just stressed, I don't know. Man, if I had the option, I think I'd have just said, I'm just going to watch online this morning, but I think someone would have noticed. Um, came up for, you know, after doing my typical prep and just couldn't shake it, went back, spent some more time in prayer, um, text a friend, can you pray for me? And just, man, and uh, just worshiping together with you guys. That's what my heart needs. Um, so good to, uh, to worship our God together. Um, so, man, I uh, appreciate it. Appreciate that. Um, kids, you guys can head downstairs. Um, teacher, we'll meet you at the back. Look at this stampede. Love it. Love it. While the kids are making their way out, um, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Um, looking at uh, verses 15 to 17 as I try and figure out how this new stand works. It's a little funky. Not very well might be the answer. All right, uh, Colossians 1. Um, how many of you uh, have put together Ikea furniture? Husbands, I know you've done it. You know my pain. My wife put her hand up. That's like 20% true. <laughs> Supervised, maybe. Uh, well, you'll, you'll know my pain. Uh, for Christmas, um, my, uh, my parents and I got together and got my wife a a movable island for the kitchen. It's not Ikea. It's nicer than Ikea, um, but uh, that kind of an idea, it comes um, with some, meaning all, assembly required. And, uh, and so I tried to convince her. That was part of the joy of this gift, but still somehow fell to me Christmas afternoon to be constructing it. And uh, well into the project, just hit a brick wall. It's not making sense. Things aren't going where they're supposed to be going. It wouldn't fit. Something was terribly wrong. And and let it be known, though my wife opened them and waved them in front of me, I did not, did not demean myself to looking at the instructions. Um, But it did turn out that I had a significant piece in the wrong place. And and so um, when when you start with a big piece in the wrong place, Everything else goes wrong. Nothing goes the way it should from there. And I had to disassemble it back down to that bottom piece and start over. Um, There are just key pieces. There are certain pieces you get that piece wrong. Everything after is wrong. Now, Grant did a fantastic job uh, preaching for us last week. That's not what was wrong. Grant, don't worry. Um, And he brought us uh, Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Um, and uh, ends with that beautiful statement of the gospel in verses 12 to 14, this this just wonderful, uh, beautiful passage. Uh, And then Paul moves into verse 15, and it's at this point that he transitions from the the welcome or the the, the greeting uh, into the meat of the letter. 
he's getting, he's getting to it now. And uh, he, he reminds them in, in 12 to 14 the, the wonder of the gospel. He points them to God the Father, the kind of the author and architect of this great thing, and then to Jesus, the one who carried it out. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that leads him then into what is probably the main feature of this letter, answering the question, who is Jesus? Maybe, what is Jesus? And the reason he starts the letter here is if you get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. If that piece is in the wrong place, the, the domino effect is huge. You've you got to tear it all down. You've got to start over. And so Paul begins this letter. He makes this, this piece clear. He makes sure that, that Christ is in his rightful place. And, and actually, the, the rest of the letter, you could just about say, is a sermon on these verses. He's unpacking that from here on out, as he talks about the new life in Christ, it, it has to come back to, to who Christ is, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Um, so these are just rich verses. They'll be familiar to you. Um, verses 15 to 20, let me read it for us. He, that's pointing back to Jesus from verse uh, 14 and 13. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Would you pray with me? Father, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Lord, we need you this morning. God, this picture of Christ is so glorious. Would you give us eyes to see what our flesh is just incapable of seeing? Would you help us to understand your truth rightly? Father, I pray for um, my words, that they might be faithful and true, that they might represent your word clearly. God, if there's anything that I have on my uh, heart to say that is not from you, God, would, would those words just fall to the ground? Would they be uh, forgotten? God, might your word be exalted and your son be exalted uh, as we come um, to your truth this morning. God, be at work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have in these verses here um, is often called a hymn. Uh, not like we typically think of a hymn. It's, it's not necessarily meant to be sung, but it but is this kind of concise and, and somewhat poetic statement of truth. And this hymn um, makes three key statements about Jesus. And then they're all relative statements. They're statements of relationship. It's one thing to say Jesus is great. It's hard to really get after how great if we don't have some kind of point of reference. Great compared to what? 
We were off playing pond hockey, a pond behind some farmer's house. There might be a guy there who is great at hockey. Like he just skates circles around us. He scores at will, does amazing. But if you take that same guy who's great at hockey on pond hockey, you drop in the WHL, um, he's going to get destroyed. He's going to get totally embarrassed. And then take the best player off that WHL team and move him to the NHL, and he's no longer the best on the ice. He's no longer skating circles around people. Um, He's having a hard time keeping up. Uh, We need a point of reference. And so as the point of reference changes, that helps us understand what we're talking about. And so Paul speaks about the greatness of Christ. He gives us these three anchors, these three points of of reference. Um, The first two show up right away, verse 15, one after the other. Christ in relation to God, and then Christ in relation to creation. The third one uh, is down in verse 18, and it's Christ in relation to the church or the new creation. Now, they all flow together. That's kind of one unit, but um, we don't have all day. Um, You guys want lunch, so we're just going to do two out of the three this morning, and uh, we'll pick up on the third one next week. Um, But we see first this statement of, of who Christ is, the greatness of Christ in relation to God the Father. We see that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. That statement ought to just stop us in our tracks. Like you can't just say that. That's, that's, that's mind-blowing. God is not visible, right? I mean, John 4, God is spirit. He, he's not a physical being. He's a spiritual being. And so all of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the, the arm of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, the ears of the Lord, um, that's using a human analogy for our benefit. It's not literal. God is spirit. He has none of those things. And so you cannot, for instance, paint a picture of God. You you can't do it. You can't carve a statue of God. Whatever physical thing you try to use to represent him, it's wrong right from the gate. And that's particularly um, significant uh, as we come to the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, that's exactly what is in view. You shall not make for yourselves any idols, not of false gods and not of Yahweh. No idols. God would not allow his people to make physical representations of him. And and I think the first reason for that is that he has no physical representation. He doesn't have a body. The second reason is because he will not share his glory. He has no physical representation and he does not share his glory. God would not allow his glory, his worship to be divided between himself and some physical inanimate object. Um, Isaiah 42, 8 speaks to this. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God doesn't share well when it comes to his glory. He deserves all of it. And so you don't worship an idol, you worship the Lord, you worship Yahweh only and Yahweh directly. Israel was terrible at this, right? I mean, right from the get-go, it's embarrassing 
They hear the voice of the Lord from the mountain, gives them the, the Ten Commandments, and they tremble in fear. They say, we can't hear anymore. Moses, you, you go talk to God. And Moses goes up the mountain to get the, the stone tablets and the rest of the law. And, and 40 days later, Moses comes down. And what does he find? Aaron saying, behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. These golden calves represent Yahweh. It's crazy. Aaron, we just talked about this. And that continues through their history. They wrestle with this idea of idolatry. They so badly want a physical representation of God. And so the prophets are just filled with these condemnations. Don't make idols. God will not share his glory. Not with an image of himself. He is the invisible God. He cannot be represented in some statue. But that's exactly the language that Paul is using here. Like exactly the language. He's doing this intentionally. Jesus is the image, the, the, the icon, is the Greek word there, the idol of the invisible God. I think that's the third reason that God would not allow them to make any images is because God had prepared his perfect image to come. You have to understand the, the power of this language in the ancient world and, and right up into Greek and Roman culture. Um, the idea of an idol um, was not just a, a symbol of a deity. It's not like we think of a statue of a person and the person's here and the statue's over there. Um, no, the, the idol was the manifestation of that God. The idol was powerful because it, it brought the presence of that God with it. And, and that's a whole other issue with the idolatry was their attempt to try to control God. We want a God that we can manipulate. And so this idea that the, the person of that God was connected to the physical idol, and that's precisely, again, what, what Paul is drawing on and saying about Jesus. Jesus is not just a symbol of Yahweh. He is the very presence of Yahweh, now truly manifested in physical form. Down in verse 19, Paul says, in him the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. We'll, we'll spend some more time on that when we get there, but just think about that. Um, it's it said twice for emphasis, right? Those, those, are, those are not necessary words. All the fullness not just part, not just a spark of deity in Jesus, but all the fullness dwelt in him. Hebrews 1.3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God made visible. Like the, the light from the sun, Jesus is the glory from God. He is God made visible. No idol was to be made because God is spirit. God is invisible and Jesus makes him visible. Listen to, to John 1.18. Um, it says, no one has ever seen God. But then he, he says this about Jesus. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. What? That doesn't even make sense. Like, Paul, what are you talking about? This John... No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. It's, it's the Trinity. This is the complexity of the God that we worship. It's the Trinity. Jesus is God, and he's sitting at the side of the only God. There is one God, 
There are three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all fully God. And they are all um, distinct persons. And there is one God. Find that hard to understand. Welcome to the club. Um, Did you think God would be simple? Did you think that your human mind would be able to grasp all that he is? Like we are infinitely less capable of understanding God than an ant is of understanding all of human society, right? Like this is not a big surprise that God is a little more complicated than we are. So we're not to make idols because God is invisible. Now Jesus has made him visible. Secondly, remember that they were not to make idols because God does not share his glory. Not with anyone or anything, but guess what? If Jesus, as the image of God, is himself God, then there's no division of glory. Yahweh's not sharing his glory. To worship Jesus is to worship Yahweh. They are the same. That's why Jesus can say this again, this, this ludicrous statement otherwise. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. you imagine saying that to God? Give me glory, God. You glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world existed. No one else can say that. Before creation, Jesus shared in the glory of God the God who does not share his glory. And he could do it because he was God. How great is Jesus? Who is he in relation to Yahweh? 100%. He is Yahweh. He is the image, the physical manifestation of the invisible God. This is the single most important piece of information about Jesus. This is the core of his identity. If you want to know who Jesus is, he's God. Conversely, you want to know who God is? He's Jesus. On one hand, there are many who would like to portray Jesus as something else, something lesser. He's a good teacher. Well, he taught that he was God, so if he's not God, he's not a good teacher. A good man, again, a good man doesn't lie about something like that. Well, some kind of wise sage. It's not working. Maybe he's a a lesser deity. He's, He's a God. God doesn't share his glory. God says, I am God and there are no others. There is none like me. Not not even similar. No, it falls short. There is one God. God does not share his glory. Jesus can have no lesser identity than God himself. It, it, It fails to put Jesus in his proper place. And if we get Jesus wrong, anything we build on after that is wrong. We have to get him in his rightful place. On the other hand, there are those who like to speak of God in kind of these vague terms. Say, well, it's all the same, right? Whether you believe in Jesus specifically or not, kind of all roads lead to heaven and and it's all the same God and we all kind of have this, let's all just kind of kumbaya together. and, and, And that's not it. That's not the case. There is one God and that God has shown up in human history, has revealed himself and said, here I am in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. 
If you don't have Jesus, you don't know the true God. It is as simple and as certain as that. There's no way around it. Let's look at this from another angle, though. Jesus, being the image of God, tells us about who he is. It tells us about who God is. It also tells us about who we are. If you remember back in Genesis 1, the creation of mankind, what does God say? Verse 26, let us make man in our image. That's familiar. In our likeness. Verse 27 goes on to say, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a difference there. Jesus is the image of God. We are created in the image of God, in his likeness. But there's a correlation as well. Now, Genesis 3 comes along. Sin enters the world. That image of God in us that that was given to us is is marred and twisted. I don't think it's obliterated. We're still humans. We're still in the image of God, but it's not what it was intended to be. We're not what we were created to be. But when we look at Jesus, when we see him, he's the perfect example. Of the image of God. He's the, he's the prototype. He's the model. He's the, the pattern, the ideal of what a human life is meant to be in, in perfect relationship to the Father, perfect love for humanity. So many think of Christianity as this kind of lesser life. It's a great sacrifice to be a Christian. You need to, you need to put off all of these uh, great and wonderful things in order to, to kind of sacrifice and serve the Lord. That's not it, that's backwards. That is upside down and dead wrong. In Jesus, in the kind of life that he modeled and that he taught, we see the fullness of human life. We see what we were created to be. That's where human flourishing happens. Following Jesus, that's what we were created for. A life that we were intended to have. So uh, Colossians 3.10, just later on, um, Paul says that, that this new life in Christ, look at it. He says, to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So as we grow in Christ-likeness, we're, we're renewing that image of God in us more fully, more completely. In Jesus, we see not only the fullness of God revealed, but we see the fullness of of what human life was meant to be. And once again, if we get Jesus wrong, we get everything wrong. You try to define your life, try to find kind of fullness and meaning and purpose and and satisfaction without Jesus, you're not going to get there. You're running down the wrong road. It won't lead you to the right place. You continue on the path of sin and destruction, the path that has caused so much pain and suffering in this world. True life, meaningful life can only be found when Jesus is in his rightful place. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God that tells us about who God is and who Jesus is, who we are. And then Paul shifts. Who is this Jesus in relation to creation? Who is Jesus in relation to this world? And we see Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. 
I read these verses for us again just to refresh our memories. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So the first statement there, I think, is the heading. He is the firstborn of creation, and then he unpacks it. You see the word for there. He is the firstborn of all creation for because of these three things, three um, prepositions. All things were created by him, and all things were created for him, and all things hold together in him. All of those are just incredibly rich. Let me try to unpack these a little bit. First, let's, let's focus on this heading, the main point here. He is the firstborn of all creation. If we don't understand that, we're going to get off track right away. Now, that title has caused some confusion, and it's easy to see why, right? Many will argue he's not God himself. Merely a, a representative of God, he was the first one created, right? He's the first one born. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would believe today. Um, that goes all the way back to a guy named Arius in, in the third century. He stood up and said, yeah, Jesus is like a higher power, but not fully God. He's similar to God. And, and that's the, the conversation started there and led to what we call the Nicene Creed, right? That the church kind of gathered all of the heads of the church from around the, the known world at the time, uh, 325, the city of Nicaea, and they dug through scripture and they debated hard and, and they agreed together in this formal document that we call the Nicene Creed. And they said, no, Jesus is of one nature with God. He's not similar. He is God. Homoousios, one essence. He's God. But let's be honest, when it comes to this discussion, this verse makes us a little uncomfortable. Right? If, it, if, it, if a JW came to your front door, um, this is not the first passage you're going to turn to. Okay, that word firstborn kind of seems to prove their point. So let's take a closer look here. The first thing we have to remember uh, is that no verse in Scripture exists in a vacuum, right? It, it doesn't sit there by itself for us to try to understand. We have to look at the context. And, and let's just start with the, the context of the Bible. Scripture does not contradict itself. And so whatever firstborn means, it has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. It has to be consistent with what we just saw. A, 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 a God, a Jesus, who, who shares in the glory of the God who does not share his glory who is the image of the invisible God. Just to push this point even further, let's, let's just peruse Scripture a little bit because it's not vague about this. Just a few more of many, many examples. Um, Matthew 1.23, Jesus, or Mary is told that they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does that mean? It means God with us. John 8.58 Jesus has this awkward statement that he says to the Pharisees, um, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. The grammar doesn't work there. Well, he's very intentionally using 
poor grammar in order to apply the title I am, um, which is literally in the Hebrew Yahweh, to himself. And, and we think, well, there's no way he could mean that. Well, the Jews sure thought so because they picked up stones to stone him because that was blasphemy. They got it. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's pretty clear. According to, to Jesus' command, uh, the, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, we are to baptize people in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three share together in the status of this one glorious name. Revelation twenty two thirteen, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's pretty clear in and of itself. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So nothing is before him or after him. And if that's not clear enough, we have to realize he's quoting Scripture. He's quoting from Isaiah 44.6, which says, Thus says the Lord, and that's all caps, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, the Lord of hosts, it's all one person who is the first and the last. And he says, beside me, there is no God. Which means Jesus is not a God because there is no other God. Nothing but Yahweh, the Most High. Jesus is God. So we start with that anchor. Looking first at just the Bible as a whole, what do we know about Jesus? And then secondly, let's just zoom in on this passage specifically. What do we see right here? Does this passage support the idea that Jesus is the first created being? Well, as we read it, I would argue the whole passage is set to, to set Jesus apart from creation. To show that he's not part of creation, but outside of it and, and over it. Look, at he, he explains what firstborn of creation means. He tells us, we don't have to guess. He says he is the firstborn for because all things were created by him and all things were created for him and, and in him all things hold together. His whole point is that, that Jesus is not part of creation but is over creation. John 1 makes a similar point, verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So awkward grammar again, but if you just break it down, it's clear. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So everything that was made was made through him. So we have two categories, that which is created and that which is not created. Jesus created all of the things in the category of that which was created. So which category does Jesus go in? Well, he doesn't fit well into the created category. It's impossible. Firstborn is outside of creation. He's over it. So the Bible elsewhere shows us clearly that Jesus is Yahweh. These, verse, these verses right here even prove that point. So why then? Why does Paul use the word firstborn? Like it just seems to be the wrong word then, isn't it? Like that, you're just confusing the issue. Well, in Paul's day, it wasn't the wrong word. 
In, in Paul's cultural context, it was the perfect word. Um, the word is prototakos, if you, if you want to learn a little bit of Greek today, um, which does technically mean firstborn. Proto, first, takos, technia, child, progeny, firstborn. But it's a title. It's a title that was, yes, typically given to the firstborn in the family, but it, but it didn't just mean that you were the first kid. That's not what it's about. It's an honor. It's a position that you held in the family as the oldest son. And as, as you go through uh, and, and look at this, so if you had a daughter, she was the firstborn but she would not take the place of the prototakos. That was not her role. That was not her title because she would marry and join another household. The prototakos wasn't just the first child. It was the heir of the father. It was the one who was at the right hand of the father who would share in and one day take over uh, running the family business and, and the household who would carry the, the honor, the dignity, the responsibility of the, of the family name. It's a title, it's a, a position, and, and yes, it's typically given to the firstborn son, but not always. Who is Abraham's firstborn son? Ishmael. But Isaac was the prototokos. Isaac was the, the child of promise who took the, the family name, took the father's legacy. Isaac then has two sons. Esau is born before Jacob. Esau is the firstborn, but he despised his birthright. He sold it to his brother. And so Jacob takes up the mantle of the prototokos. His name then is changed to uh, Joseph, Jacob. His name is changed to Israel, the nation of Israel. He has the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Israel was not the first nation to be created. They were laid on the list. They were a small, insignificant nation. And yet, Exodus 4.22, the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. When I translated that verse from Hebrew to Greek, you know what word they used? Prototakos. He's saying, Israel is my chosen one. Israel is the one that I will bless. Israel is the one who will ultimately inherit the world. Psalm 89, 27, the Lord says to David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. God didn't change his birth order. David was not the first one born. He was the youngest of the sons of Jesse. And God made him the prototokos. The Lord elevated him to that status, that position and all of these examples, if you understand the Old Testament, are so rich. Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, and especially David, they are all clearly pointing forward to Christ. They are firstborn in this kind of lesser shadow sense, pointing forward to the coming Messiah and all that he would be. It's so intentional. They are, they are firstborn pointing forward to Christ who would come as the great Redeemer, the true and full, complete Firstborn. He's not firstborn because he's created. He is firstborn precisely because he's not created. Because he is the creator of, the ruler over, and, and the ultimate owner of all of creation. That's why Paul unpacks the idea of 
firstborn with these three truths. The firstborn because all things were created by him. By him. John 1.1 tells us, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. There's the Trinity coming up again. And then uh, 1.3 tells us, Every created thing was created uh, through Jesus. We should all of a sudden be thinking back to Genesis 1.1. It's the same language, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? Well, each day of creation through that story specifically begins with God spoke. God said, let there be light. God created by his word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and God created by the Word of His mouth. God orchestrated and and architected, Steve has architected a word, Um, he, He orchestrated creation, and Jesus carried it out, put it into action. By the way, Genesis 1 2, the Holy Spirit is there as well, the Spirit hovering over the waters. The Trinity is there from the very beginning. It's not a New Testament invention. But Jesus created. And in case you're wondering, what does Paul mean by all things? Um, He means all things. And he just kind of explodes that out. Everything from heaven to earth. I think the meaning there is is not heaven as we think of God's domain so much as the heavens the sky, the universe to earth. He's saying like from from A to Z, everything from heaven to earth. Then another kind of these marisms, um, visible and invisible and everything in between. Tangible and physical things um, and also spiritual things. And and I think under that category of the invisible, um, he's intentional to lay out thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. That's that's Paul's language for the the spiritual realm, for angels and demons. He uses similar language in in Ephesians very clearly. Um, And I think right here, he's kind of given the side eye to those false teachers. They were teaching that you should be worshiping angels. And Paul's going, oh no, why? Why? Why would you worship them? Jesus created them. They are so far under Jesus. Jesus created all things, including these angels that you worship. The next one, um, it doesn't stand out as well for us, I think, in the English. Paul kind of repeats himself. So all things were created through him. I think that's kind of mirroring that by him and through him. And then he adds some information. So all things were created through him. And for him. Jesus isn't just the means. He's not just the tool of creation. He's the purpose of it. It's for him. You ask, what's the the meaning of life? What's the purpose of this world, this universe, everything from from heaven to earth, seen and unseen, physical, spiritual? um, Does it just exist randomly? Is Is there a purpose to this? Is there a meaning to this? A goal to this? Yes, Jesus. It's about him. Ephesians 1.10, he says that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Jesus, things in heaven and on earth. 
All of it comes together. The entire cosmos climaxes when Jesus is fully and completely revealed as the firstborn, the one who will inherit all things. That's it. Our lives, countries rising and falling, human history, the totality of the universe, all points together, all comes together for the purpose of exalting Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's happening, by the way, Revelation 5. The Lord is on his throne and he's holding in his hand the scroll with the seven seals. It's the title deed of the world. And no one can be found who's worthy to open it, to take possession of the earth. And so John weeps. And cries out in sorrow. And one of the elders interrupts him and says, hold on. There is one. There is one who is worthy. The lion, the tribe of Judah, the, the root of David, the lamb that was slain. Jesus Christ who died again. He is worthy to take the scroll, to open the seals. He's the firstborn who can, who can inherit the world. And, and Jesus takes the scroll, and as he does, the four living creatures and the 24 elders around the throne and the myriads of angels and, and eventually every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth begin to burst out in song and worship for the Lamb who was slain, who inherits the world as his rightful possession. That's where this is going. That's where this all ends up. Inherited by Christ. It's made by him. It's made for him. And then finally, um, Paul once again, I think, repeats himself to some degree. Um, Jesus is before all things. And I think by that he is implying both by, by time he was before all things and in relative importance he is before all things. And then he adds the new information. In him all things hold together. So it's by him and it's for him and it's in him that it holds together. I think this is so cool. This is, this is one of those sadly um, overlooked doctrines. Um, there is more to Jesus than meets the eye, right? Jesus is fully God. In him, the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. He wasn't partially God. And yet at the same time, the Son of God, like the second person of the Trinity who is infinite in his being, can't be fully contained in human flesh. As God, he, he condescended to, the, to unite himself with humanity, but he did not cease to be God. And so in his human form, he, he limited himself. He limited himself to things like time and, and space, and, and he limited his, his knowledge. And in his humanity, he does lay aside some of the, the benefits of his divinity, but he doesn't cease to be God, to have his divine traits as well. So he is also at the same time still all-knowing, still everywhere present, still infinite outside of time and space. For the nerds in the room that want a new theological term, um, this is called the extra-Calvinisticum. Surprise. Calvin wrote about more than just predestination. Um, Calvin 
wrestled with this. This became part of their communion conversation. The, the presence of Christ kind of gave birth to some of this conversation, but it wasn't new to him. He's, he's drawing from Augustine and from Athanasius, but um, it goes back to the earliest days of the church. But, but what this means is that there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. When baby Jesus was lying in the manger, crying for his mother's milk, unable to feed himself, to walk, to even speak, frail and fragile human infant, he was at the same time, in the words of Hebrews 1.3, upholding the universe by the word of his power. That's cool. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was simultaneously laying in a manger and ordering the cosmos. We attempt weekly to look out into space. Our sun that we take so for granted would fit 1.3 million Earths inside of it. And it's actually a pretty pathetic star. It's small. Um, we, we use the radius of our sun as a, as a tool for measuring other stars. And, and there are numerous stars that are measured in thousands of solar radii. Beyond that, NASA estimates there's somewhere in the range of 200 billion galaxies. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up um, with this, I think rightfully, this very anti-evolution um, teaching. And so when I hear billions, I start to just write it off like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're talking millions and billions of years again. That's not this. We're looking out. We're trying to count the stars, and there are billions of them, billions of galaxies and many of those galaxies with hundreds of trillions of stars and you'll notice the language they use they say that's within the observable universe that just shows us how pathetic we are that's just as far as we can see and we don't even know how to look at anything beyond that but Jesus is over all of it Jesus is holding galaxies together let's go the other way Let's go small, this complex and mysterious world of the micro, the cell, the DNA, the, the protons and neutrons and nuclei. It's mind-blowing. Do you know how many atoms there are in a grain of sand? One grain of sand? 433, followed by 17 zeros. Okay, I think that's a quintillion, but I'm not real good at math. One grain of sand. And each of those atoms has a, a single nucleus at the center. And, and, and to get a bit of a scope of, of the, the, the comparison of the nucleus to the atom, uh, it would be like walking into the middle of a NASCAR racetrack and dropping a pea in the grass. What's going on in there? Like, what's all the open space doing? My, I was telling the kids at dinner, they're like, what holds it together? Why do the protons and neutrons? I don't know. Maybe somebody's going to figure out eventually, but the answer is Jesus. The reason every atom in that grain of sand doesn't turn into an atom bomb is that Jesus is holding it together. We know so little about this world that we live in. It is so far beyond us. And it's Jesus' power that continues to grant us existence it's Jesus that sustains the laws of physics and mathematics and the, the laws of science and nature. Those work, those are consistent because Jesus is consistent. Because he holds it 
together. Who is Jesus in relation to this massive and complex universe? He's firstborn over all of it. Because it was made by him, it was made for him, and in him it holds together. That's the Jesus that we worship. Wow. You get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. Not just a few things. It's not like if you get Jesus wrong, you're going to be wrong about you know, some religion and some philosophy. If you get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong and very, very wrong. Let's just move this conversation from stars and cells to our own lives. He didn't just create stars and galaxies and atoms. He created you. And it wasn't just the cosmic world that was created for him. You were created for him, for his glory. It's not just planets and protons that are held together in him, but every aspect of your life. Do you have Jesus in the right place? Do you see yourself rightly in relation to him? Your life is a gift from him. That your life is ultimately for him, for his glory. That's why you were created. That's your purpose in this universe. And that your life is held together in him, dependent on him. You can fight against that. You can try. You can, you can try to be your own boss and I'm going to make the decisions. And I don't care what God says. I'm going to put myself in the place of Jesus. I'm going to live like this world and my life is for me. It won't end well. It won't end well. One day Jesus will return. And he will take his rightful place as king over all. And on that day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Those who confess willfully, joyfully now will come to him in, in repentance of their sin, turning away from the, the self-focused life, that, that self-determined life lived for me, and, and, and seek him. They find grace. Grace. Can you imagine? That's back to verses 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, because we were not qualified, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light and has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, there's forgiveness. There's amnesty. There's the, there's the, the offer to switch armies, to defect from this army that has been fighting against Jesus that will most certainly be utterly destroyed and to join into the kingdom of his beloved son that will certainly be victorious and then notice there as well to share in the inheritance. This is the offer that goes out to all who would take it. But those who continue to resist him to go their own way, to, to live for themselves as if this world was for them. On that day, every knee will bow and every knee will bend, but some of them will be bent backwards. Some of them will be crushed. 
They will glorify God. They will glorify God by being defeated, by being brought to submission, by being brought into God's righteous and appropriate judgment in hell. And they will glorify God there as they receive what they deserve for their rebellion against his glory. So first and foremost, have you put Jesus in his rightful place? Have you given up that place of authority and power in your life, surrendered that to him? And then are you living in that? Do you live consistently in that understanding that in him all things hold together? Christian, this includes you. Are there parts of your life that are falling apart? that are just kind of coming off the rails. Your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your peace. So many areas of life that we try to hold on. God, you can have it all, but this one I'm going to keep. I'm going to run this one my way. Thinking I can, I can do it better. God, I know a little bit better. I'll, I'll keep this part. Guess what? It's going to fall apart. It's going to start to rattle and shake and break down, and the result is pain and suffering. Why? Because we're meant to be held together in Christ. Our lives are meant to be orbiting Him. We find those times of of pain and suffering and things going off the rails. We need to stop and look. Where's Jesus here? Did I? Did I put him in the center of this? Have I been thinking about my life holding together in Christ and trusting him in that? Or have I been doing this my own way? That's the the foundation of the message of Colossians. This new life that God offers. The fullness of life. The the joy of of the new creation and, and, and flourishing in him can only be found in Christ. Just take a minute. I'll invite the worship team to come. But before we stand and sing, you can just take some time before God. Maybe just, just, let's do it. Close your eyes. Bow your heads. Take a minute. Where's Jesus? Where have you put?